Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined across the dispatch box by Zach Green. On today's show, we're going to be mainly discussing British politics. But before we get into that, Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? I think one of the most eye-catching things I had this week was seeing that Donald Trump has agreed to a four-hour debate on the Joe Rogan podcast. First of all, I think we, I think our invitation got uh, held up in the post. That it just makes you think how bonkers this uh, this election campaign is going to be. First of all, if Joe Biden actually turns up, and second of all, I can't imagine Donald Trump and Joe Biden for four hours on a podcast. I think it's like we say, it's the bloodbath election, and that would be part of it. That would that would be simply extraordinary, wouldn't it? I mean, four hours on Joe Rogan, and when you consider some of the guests that Joe Rogan has had, kind of previously in recent in more recent times as well. I, I saw you. I've not watched the video, so I don't know whether it was clickbait or not. But one of one of the things that came up on my YouTube feed yesterday was an interview with um, Snowden on the Joe Rogan podcast, and again, that is that's quite something as well. And I think it's quite interesting because I feel like kind of elections have to move online and of course especially during the kind of age of pandemic that we're in um i I think it would be terrible for both candidates potentially to go on Mm. the podcast for four hours because that's such a long time and i think they'd both make awful awful mistakes you'd have moments where joe biden would kind of stand there and not know what to say for 10 seconds and then the republicans would frame that as joe biden kind of going senile and then inevitably Donald Trump would say something outrageously offensive and then kind of it, it would be all square. Um, so, yeah, I think both kind of campaigns should be avoiding this with a barge pole, but I guess we'll see what happens. If kind of this did happen, what 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 do you, how do you think it would go down? Do you think many people would watch? Do you think it would be well received or kind of would it flop? I, th- I think it would flop because it's four hours. I think the idea in itself is quite an, an, another one that I think that because of the you know, the pan in, in in this age of the pandemic, we need to deliver our politics in much more unique ways. And doing a a podcast debate between two political figures is great, but if you look at the two political figures that are proposed to do this, you're thinking, well, these are two men that we've all said have their you know have have their cons, and they massively outweigh them for four hours. I think it's exhausting for everyone involved. I think it wouldn't go down quite well and it's I think it's more on Joe Rogan's part to try and promote himself even more because to get those to get those guests would be incredible so I think it would flop but not for not for Rogan who can just push the rest of his podcast I think the thing as well if if we move towards kind of podcast style debates you have to like the other person or at least have some kind of respect for the person you're talking to um Otherwise, it doesn't really work. I mean, I, I honestly don't believe that Joe Biden and Donald Trump could have a four-hour conversation without one of them walking out. Um, mm-hmm. Because, And again, I think it speaks to the, the way that this presidential election is going, where normally there is this semblance of kind of respect for the other side. Normally you have two presidential candidates, I think I said this last week, where they stand up and say, look, the other person running for the job is a good man, a good woman. However, unfortunately they're not right for the job you should give it to me we disagree on things based on ideology based on ideas 
in 2020, we've seen the exact opposite. Donald Trump and Joe Biden, or kind of the Trump and Biden campaigns, are very much campaigning on the footing of the other side being evil and having the wrong ideas. Mm. And how that translates into a four-hour debate on YouTube, potentially, um, I'm not too sure. The thing that caught my attention this week, and again, is another story from American politics, is that Mike Bloomberg, who, of course, is bid... For the president, uh, for the presidency, fell flat earlier this year. Has pledged at least one hundred million dollars to Joe Biden's presidential campaign in Florida. The polls in Florida, the largest battleground state in terms of the electoral college, have started to narrow, with Biden's lead down to three points, according to a Monmouth University poll published earlier this week. That poll was of likely voters, and it is kind of an A plus rated poll. Donald Trump has hinted that he'll spend his own money in the state ahead of early voting opening in the 24th of September. Florida offers 29 of 270 electoral college votes required to win the election. And of course, it's worth remembering that while President Trump won in Florida in 2016, it was Barack Obama who took the state four years earlier. In terms of kind of the fundraising race, there's been lots of talk kind of about how Trump has basically been campaigning for the election or, or fundraising for the election rather since he was elected to the White House. And we often hear that Trump has basically blown through all his money and is now kind of on a similar financial footing to the Democratic candidate, which is in presidential elections fairly unheard of. And I mean, Obama was a very, very good fundraiser, but even so, he was kind of lagging behind on Wall Street and this kind of thing, especially in 2012. And I find it quite worrying for Republicans, especially in kind of key battleground states where they are going to be up against it financially. What do you kind of make of that, Zach? I think in a way you can read it in two ways where if there's money being thrown about in a campaign, it it, it could go down really well. You know, you're spending it smartly in target seats and target states and, you know, doing basically getting the engine of the campaign, you know, the attack lines being out there. But at the same time, I think some Americans, given that the pandemic has put it put most Americans on the breadline, many people are suffering the stimulus checks of which it seems like a forever ago about the stimulus checks that weren't going far enough. And if people are seeing that Mike Bloomberg, for example, is throwing a hundred million into a state, you kind of you could alienate yourself from these um Rust Belt, Rust Belt voters where they go, oh, hang on a minute, they're just spending money just because other people matter more than I, I do, but I work hard. and It's that kind of, it's a dangerous tightrope to walk. So, of course, Republicans should be worried, but at the same time, it could be a good PR stunt for, for them to say, well, you know, all the Democrats care, they don't care about American people, they just care about beating Donald Trump. And you see that from how Trump tries to frame this election campaign, that the Democrats don't want to win power to make things better for Americans. They just want to make sure Donald Trump's not the president. And that kind of galvanises his core voters to say, we'll go out and vote to make sure that it doesn't happen because we don't feel that Joe Biden actually would make our lives better. He might be a better candidate than Donald Trump, but the vision for America just isn't for them and they don't feel like they can resonate with it. It's tricky, isn't it? I think the fundraising race for this election is so complicated compared to previous years because there's so many vested interests at play and I, I find it 
somewhat baffling the amount of money that Mike Bloomberg has spent on this race. Um, simply because it's a lot of his his personal money, and I I do question what does Bloomberg have to gain by getting rid of Donald Trump? Um, because obviously this is a guy who's incredibly rich and would probably benefit, or I say probably would definitely benefit from having to pay less tax. Um, so yeah, I find some of the personal da- dynamics at play here somewhat odd. And again, the president responded to Bloomberg's, I mean, hundred million dollar donation to the Biden campaign by basically making fun of his hands or or whatever it was, and the, and then kind of saying, well, I thought you'd finish with politics after after what happened in the debates. And again, he he repeated kind of the nickname that he's given to Elizabeth Warren. It's it's going to be so interesting going forward and i think whether or not this has a major impact on the election remains to be seen but if we look at previous years there tends to be somewhat of a correlation between what you spend and how many votes you win and i feel like florida could be one of the tipping points potentially it's a lot of electoral college votes up for grabs and if trump does lose the state his path to victory narrows significantly and i think kind of if you look at the state of play before the coronavirus struck Trump was going to comfortably win in Florida, probably mm. anyway. He was he, he was looking fairly strong in Florida. And again, there was a Republican who won there two years ago. It, it was looking good. It was a state that Trump was expecting to hold on to. But now we're talking about it being a battleground state. Now we're talking about Arizona being a battleground state. Now we're talking about Texas potentially being a battleground state. And again, I don't think all of these states will flip. Um, I think that would just be ludicrous. But the fact that Trump is having to defend in these areas will be concerning. Again, the president said that he would be willing to spend his own money on the campaign if required. And again, I find that bizarre because this is when he was kind of a candidate or um, a nominee for president the first time around. He kind of charged his own campaign to use his facilities. So, like, when he used his golf courses, he charged the campaign rent and things like this. I find it somewhat questionable whether or not Trump will actually be willing to to spend on this. And as I said, there are so many dynamics at play on this. Any final thoughts on the state of the presidential election before we get into the main topic of the show? Donald Trump, there is a path of victory. There's the health warning that we are so near yet so far away from November the 3rd that everything can change. And then everything can change again. And I think it all, that's the one thing that Donald Trump has on his hands is time. And from now until November the 3rd, he wants the vaccine, for example, right? And if it's the little things that I think Donald Trump is clinging on to, they can kind of be pushed out right before polling day. And if he's to somehow get the vaccine to unlock the country, then I, I feel like a lot of swing votes would gravitate directly towards Donald Trump, no matter what his his campaign has been. Been essentially, whoever can unlock America will unlock their their road to the White House. Definitely, there's there's just so so much up for grabs at the moment with American politics. And again, you look at kind of the congressional races as well. There are lots of examples where states are trending kind of away from Trump in some areas, but the Republican candidate is distant distanced themselves from the president and is doing better in the polls. Um, and it's going to create quite a strange election night because you can have a situation where Donald Trump is doing pretty badly among voters in some of these key states, whereas congressional and kind of local candidates are doing better. 
And again, that's definitely something to keep an eye out for as well. Moving on to the main part of the show, the Internal Market Bill, of course, a proposed law that would give the government the power to override parts of the withdrawal agreement, has passed the second reading phase in the Commons. Members of Parliament backed the bill by 340 votes to 263. Two Conservatives, Sir Roger Garrell and Andrew Percy, voted with the opposition. It's important to give some background to this bill. So government ministers say it contains vital safeguards to protect Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK if negotiations on a future trade deal with the EU break down. The bill is designed to enable goods and services to flow freely across England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland when the UK leaves the EU single market and customs union on the 1st of January 2021. Critics, however, including a number of Conservative MPs, have warned that it risks damaging the UK by breaching international law. Uh, first thing kind of to talk about, Zach, what do you make of the internal market bill? I feel it, it, it felt like an episode of Back to the Future. It felt like this was deja vu of the 2019 Parliament, where you had Boris Johnson going to the absolute extreme, so the absolute extreme of brinkmanship in what would blow up negotiations with the European Union but also across the pond and uh, people in his own party reopening the old wounds and famously Ed Miliband put it accusing of getting Brexit undone it was a remarkable stream of events you know former chancellors former prime ministers former grandees all condemning not just Boris Johnson's uh, plan but also Boris Johnson himself it became remarkably personal and it, it felt as if we had gone back in time, back to the, uh, I'll borrow the phrase from Mr Johnson, back to the deadlock and Parliament's refusal to get Brexit done. It does feel a bit like that. I feel nothing, to, to quote another former Prime Minister, nothing has changed over the past year because of course this, uh, I feel like this is probably something we'll talk about a bit later, but kind of this is the deal that the prime minister negotiated this is the deal that conservative mps who stayed in the party kind of campaigned for at the last general election and this is the deal that they voted for upon their return to parliament and again i saw one conservative mp claim that the eu was trying to bind this parliament to its predecessor which is absolute nonsense because these mps were the ones who voted for the legislation in the first place they voted for the withdrawal agreement and it's quite confusing. I can only imagine what this must look like if you don't follow politics closely. And especially if you kind of follow it peripherally and you tend to vote Conservative. Because one of the tweets that really got to me the other day was the Conservative Party kind of tweeted saying that the Labour Party had taken sides with the European Union. Which, for me... It just wasn't the case. That wasn't what the vote was about. And again, it was it was the second reading of the bill. And it just feels very distorted that we're now at this kind of make believe Brexit loggerhead again, because I don't genuinely believe. Well, it's not the case that this is a case about Brexit or not, because Brexit has happened. Brexit is Mm. is is in in motion effectively. And you have various people across the Conservative Party, many of whom are actually Brexiteers, saying they're not willing to vote for the legislation as it currently is and of course the the most obvious example of this is 
is the former Attorney General. So I don't really have too much to say. It's just a very, very strange set of affairs, I would say. Um, Tory MPs, of course, have, have warned that it risks damaging the UK by breaching international law. And this is something that a number of former prime ministers have spoken about. Theresa May spoke about it in the Commons. You had John Major and Tony Blair making statements. I believe, I believe they might have even made a joint statement, which again is fairly remarkable considering they don't exactly have an amazing relationship either. I mean, it's it's quite something, isn't it? Do we Have we literally just gone back in time by nine months and we, we're back in this December election kind of mood? Exactly. Exactly. I honestly think that's what's happened. You see how Johnson was trying to sell this idea to people in Parliament. It felt like a campaign speech. It did feel as if both sides, once again, were in this deadlock, this eternal deadlock, in this misery of if we need to get this done. And, and what actually struck me, it kind of feels as if the difference between Labour's policy pre-election back in 2019 is the exact same as this their policy now, only that Brexit has happened. So it's, um, it shows that I think things are moving in flux, and it's actually Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, that's standing still. But yeah, I agree. I think the narrative on Brexit is so, so interesting at the moment. Um, and it's almost inverted itself, because you had Sakir Starmer coming out and saying quite kind of, Brexity lines. It was very much kind of in support of leaving the European Union at this point. It's, it is what it is. It's going to happen. And again, the Liberal Democrats are no longer campaigning to rejoin under Sir Ed Davies' leadership either. Mm-hmm. It's it's very distorted. It is very, very distorted. And I wanted to read some of the comments from Roger Gow. So he's the MP for North Thanet, which you'll remember kind of is the area where UKIP had the only member of parliament. Um, and I just wanted to read his comments because he was one of the politicians, one of the conservative politicians who voted against the bill. He said, I think that this is damaging to our international reputation for honest and straight dealing at a time when we are about to embark on a series of trade negotiations. I took a view that you fight this too for now at every step. He suggested other colleagues were holding their fire until later in the bill's passage with a group led by ex-minister Sir Bob Neill pressing for a parliamentary lock on the government's ability to exercise the powers. I'm not remotely surprised that I'm in a tiny majority, a tiny minority rather. I think that may change next Tuesday, he added. So essentially, and I think I agree with this analysis, although on his part it's not analysis, he he literally will know. Um, There are going to be more conservative figures who join the rebellion on this. I I still personally believe that the bill will pass regardless. Do Do you agree? I feel, I think we kind of alluded to this last week, that this might be the beginning of the compromise being sold to the Conservative Party, that it might get to the point where something in the negotiations does get unlocked and then Boris Johnson turns round to the Conservative Party and says, which is breaking international law or having this compromise, and you'll see them flock to the compromise. So I think that, that's what could happen. We've, we've already under a lot of pressure from the European Union over this, that they will refuse to ratify the, a trade deal if this is in place. You've already had warnings from the US. Also now, Japan in the Japan deal that we signed, the first one as an independent trading nation, as the government likes to pride themselves upon, that in fact a lot of the logjam issues we, we're having in the European Union, the state aid, for example, we are ties much stricter rules under the Japan deal. So I think it's the beginning of the end 
of the of the break of the law but it's i just think at the moment it's difficult to analyze what will be moving because we're getting absolutely no leg room from either way it's just like 2019 neither side would budge there might be the 11th hour um compromise that that goes through parliament instead but it's this is not a way to govern i think and the more conservative members of parliament who do join this you know, rebellion either by abstention or by actually voting against it it again reopens the wounds of the conservative party we thought they were shut because of brexit that brexit had been done there's no need to argue over it now it's going to go through and it was a majority of 80 as well it's very startling that many people do feel like the bill might die it at the next reading it's quite as you say it's quite something because the conservatives have such a large majority the opposition has given up on staying in the eu it's not going to happen and again the conservative party has a big clear out of figures who were in favor of remaining in the european union and were willing to kind of rebel on key pieces of legislation over this of course it lost the likes of ken clark Rory Stewart is no longer an MP. I don't think Rory Stewart is even in the Conservative Party anymore. You lost so many of these figures who are very, very keen to see the UK either negotiate a soft Brexit or not leave the European Union at all. And we had this new intake of 2019 kind of Conservatives in the Red War. Many of those Conservatives aren't particularly happy about this legislation either, which is complicated to think about and it's difficult to think about because this was a group of member of parliament a uh, group of mps who most people expected would pretty much toe the line of boris johnson's path they'd, they'd follow what boris johnson said because ultimately they owed their election to him they didn't necessarily think they would be elected and of course part of their electoral kind of promise part of that kind of appeal to voters was the fact that it was boris johnson's deal boris was going to and at the moment it doesn't feel like that is really going on with the brexit situation of course ministers say that this legislation contains vital safeguards to protect northern ireland and the rest of the uk if negotiations if negotiations on a future trade deal break down the bill is designed to enable goods and services to flow freely across england scotland wales and northern ireland essentially and i saw a really good um tweet about this the other day about brexit essentially the main issues with this is there is going to be have there's going to have to be a border somewhere whether that's between kind of mainland britain and northern ireland whether that's between northern ireland and the republic of ireland or whether that's between the island of ireland and the rest of the european union somewhere there has to be a border simply because the uk will no longer be a part of the customs union and so on and it's just a question of where that border happens to be and this is why the negotiations have been so complex and so fraught because it's completely, un and this is the issue as well, it's completely understandable that no Conservative and Unionist party would want to have a sea border between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland. That's not kind of what the Conservatives believe in. And of course, I don't think it's what any of the major political parties mm. in the UK believe in. It's, it's why the withdrawal agreement was so controversial. You then have the suggestion that you could have a border between Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland that obviously can't happen because of the good friday agreement then comes the suggestion that you put a border between the republic of ireland northern ireland and the rest of the european union which mm. would be hugely damaging hugely detrimental to the irish economy which of course they would never agree to because they weren't the ones who voted to leave the european union it is such a 
kind of tricky situation because we all knew this as well. This is this isn't new information necessarily. No. At least it won't be new information if we've been paying attention to kind of the issues at hand. So yeah, I think Brexit, as we said last week in the podcast, Brexit is definitely back on the agenda. Um, and with the return of Brexit, we've also seen a number of political figures kind of return from the woodwork. Of course, Ed Miliband, there was a time a couple of years ago where he was grown in popularity. There was kind of the Millie fandom. And well, he's back. He's, of course, a member of the Shadow Cabinet under Sakia Starmer. And kind of to round off this part of the show, we wanted to play a clip from the internal market debate. So here is Ed Miliband. And then the Prime Minister tried to slip this in. I don't know whether the House noticed. There is an irony here, which is that, as if this wasn't enough, this bill does precisely nothing to address the issue of the transport of food from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. It is about two issues where they're going to override international law. It's about exit declarations, Northern Ireland to GB, and the definition of state aid relating to Northern Ireland. Now, if the Prime Minister wants to tell us that there's another part of this bill that I haven't noticed that will deal with this supposed threat of the blockade, he can, I'll give way to him, I'll very happily give way to him and tell me, he can tell us, I'm sure he's read it, I'm sure he knows it, I'm sure he knows it in detail because he's a detailed man. Uh, uh, come on, come on, tell us what, what, what clause what clause protects the threat that he says he's worried about, about uh, GB to Northern Ireland exports? I give way to him. There you have it. He didn't read the protocol. He hasn't read the bill. He doesn't know his stuff. So, Zach, what did you make of Ed Miliband's performance in the debate earlier this week? I couldn't believe that that was the former leader of the opposition. I, I, it is, it, I see Ed Miliband's like recovery as this as a figure in the Labour Party is, is so lovely to see. He's he's always been a quite a strong character within the Labour Party, and he absolutely demolished Boris Johnson. Everything he was saying was really hitting hard. You saw Boris Johnson both wincing and kind of looking like looking at the floor or it, there's this picture of him just looking up to the skies with his bags under his eyes and it, it, Miliband was strong it was very much and I, I said this actually a couple of days ago I've never seen Keir Starmer so far do what Ed Miliband done and that kind of shows you the difference in leadership styles that we saw that the whole theatrics of the um, I'll give way to him was commonplace when it was Miliband Cameron, you know, in which does seem like forever ago, twenty ten to fifteen. And it's a complete contrast to how Keith Starmer is, very measured, very much trying to get the uh, the moments in quite seamlessly. It's Miliband's going for the gotcha moments, but they're the moments that people actually do look at. And it was one of the strongest blistering performances by Ed Miliband, I think, in his political career, that it really was a complete takedown and we all worried that when Keir Starmer couldn't obviously turn up to the House of Commons he was self-isolating we were all worrying whether or not Ed Miliband was you know above his brief and it turns out he knew his stuff and Boris Johnson didn't and the most capturing line of that he said was either not being straight with the country or he's not read it his own deal and it was such a thing to see even Tory MPs were looking at Boris Johnson as he is he's right he's one of them 
and both of those outcomes are damaging. Yeah, I mean, I I was actually blown away by Miliband's performance because while he was leader of the opposition, he was characterised as lacking charisma, as not being a very good speaker, as not performing too well in debates, as being geeky and as, of course, not being tough enough. Um, and he really went for Boris Johnson on this occasion. He really did kind of target the weaknesses in Boris Johnson's position. And I thought it was really interesting to see because before Miliband stood in to replace Starmer, of course, Starmer was at the time waiting on on the result of a coronavirus test for someone in his household. Um, people were very kind of concerned that he was he was not going to do a good job of this. Someone thought, well, lots of people thought, well, this is this is going to end badly. And the opposite happened. It was it was a case of Ed Miliband returning to the top of the news. And again, one of the tweets that I saw from from William, who basically kind of listed the the top of the bulletins of each, I think BBC Sky, ITV, all of them pretty much apart from Sky, focused on the Ed Miliband speech in the Commons to kind of open the debate. And again, I think that's that says something a, a lot about kind of his changing position in the Labour Party under, of course, new management as well. I think Miliband is someone we're going to hear a lot from because, and again, you see Ed Miliband out of context quite a lot. I mean, for example, he did the podcast with um, James O'Brien. He, he's done Desert Island Discs and all this kind of stuff. I think he's a politician who kind of ignoring the bacon sandwich and all of this kind of stuff to one side is actually quite well liked by the public. I don't think he's someone who is kind of looked at as being this kind of evil politician or this kind of far left evil communist figure. I think he's someone who can actually be of political use to the Labour Party a little bit, maybe in the way that um, the Democrats in America are starting to use or are continuing to use Hillary Clinton. It's like this is the ghost of Christmas past. We do not want to lose to the Conservatives like this again. Kind of look at Ed. Kind of, we need to lift our socks and go again. And I think that's quite interesting as well. Um, do you think the Labour Party's opposition to this bill will make any difference in the slightest? Uh, uh, well, it's, it's a majority. At the end of the day, it's a majority debate. It's so difficult, I think, for this opposition, as forensic as they are, to instigate real, real change. If the majority was was wafer thin, then I think a stronger position such as the one we're seeing would have a lot more political currency. I think, nonetheless, I think the, that those illuminating you know, the, the deficiencies with this bill will definitely have some influence. And it was kind of, I think with Miliband's speech, it was a goading speech. And you kind of did see that a lot of Conservatives privately agreed with absolutely everything Miliband said. And if you are a Tory... MP, this is going to be the next four years that it's not just Keir Starmer humiliating Boris Johnson in the Commons, it's Ed Miliband the one politician they absolutely derided for years for being this weak, muttering stuttering figure yet he's taking apart Boris Johnson you've got Angela Rayner today at Prime Minister's Questions tearing apart Boris Johnson and making him look like a fool and if you are an MP of the Conservatives you will be looking at this thinking, can we really do this for four years? Uh, and a lot them won't think so. So that might be the case that this opposition might get Boris Johnson into a dangerous zone with his own MPs. There is so much pressure on Boris Johnson at the moment to kind of deliver the goods for the Conservative Party because this is someone who's 
charisma basically carried the party back into government with an 80 seat majority. And if you look at it, and I think this is actually quite wise from the Labour Party kind of head office, because you have Ed Miliband, who's a figure who, as you say, Zach, was not <laughs> looked upon as a particularly good politician a number of years ago, come back and just kind of humiliate humiliate the Prime Minister, who is basically staking his personal identity on this bill. And again, he had the he had the Zoom call last week with Conservative members of Parliament. And he said, look, we need to support this bill. And that there are a lot of people within the Conservative Party who are still thoroughly unconvinced by it all. Um, another thing, I think this is probably the final thing we'll talk about before we move on. If you look at the coverage of this bill, when you talk about kind of the main speeches and kind of the key moments, there's one thing that is missing. And it's quite, I think, concerning if you want to have a, a multi-party system in the UK, of course, Ed Davey, Ed Davey was elected as the leader, the permanent leader of the Liberal Democrats a couple of weeks ago now. And throughout all of the coverage of the internal market bill, I've not heard anything about the Liberal Democrats. Should Liberal Democrat supporters be worried about the fact that the party is continuing to be kind of ignored by mainstream coverage of parliamentary affairs? I think they should somewhat. I think, again, we know that a strong Liberal Democrat party means that it's a strong, the elections are much more hotly, hotly contested. And this is one of the moments, as we've seen under Starmer, you know, to say that they are under new management, this is a new party, this is a new direction they're going in. And to not really get that message out there to potential Liberal Democrat voters. And, and we've seen this problem, I think, ever since the general election, that their votes, they're just, their vote share is just flatlining at, you know, whether it's 6%, 7%, which is not a very paltry return for them, you know, considering they were the party of the 20%, you know, 10 years ago. And the less coverage they get in huge debates such as this, they, they will kind of simmer away into what the Green Party are. Like, you know what they are, you know roughly what they're about, but you don't hear enough of them. And people kind of don't really know why they should be voting Liberal Democrat. And it's a worry going forward. And as the coronavirus goes on and the pandemic response, I mean, Ed Dave had a great question today at Prime Minister's Questions about whether or not the government broke the law in uh, disability rights. It's those kind of things that they need to get going on. And if they don't, people are just not going to see what the Liberal Democrats stand for. And we know the power of when something cuts through. And if Ed Davey just doesn't cut through to the electorate, people just won't vote for the Liberal Democrats. I think you're right. I think that's the big concern for Liberal Democrats at the moment, because a big reason or a big kind of factor that people within the Liberal Democratic Party kind of point towards as being a reason why the party doesn't perform so well is because they aren't able to attract mass coverage of their policies and of the things that their politicians are saying. However, this was a huge debate about an issue that the Liberal Democrats had previously owned in memory in many respects, especially on the pro-Europe side. And again, of course, we, we've said in this podcast, I've said in this podcast, that this the, this bill is not about whether or not the UK should remain or leave the European Union. We've moved on from that. And I feel like the coverage of the Liberal Democrats and also the messaging from the Liberal Democrats hasn't moved on. I feel that the Liberal Democrats are still very much in the space where they are known as the party of Remain, even though that is not really the case anymore. And I feel like the party is still trying to figure out what the future holds and what the future kind of should look like under Ed Davey. 
And I feel like they've got to sort it out soon because there's going to be local elections next year. And local elections typically are where the Liberal Democrats perform better. They tend to win a number of seats in local elections. They they tend to kind of be the kingmakers in a number of councils across the country. And you look at the polling figures, especially in Wales and Scotland, is really, really bad news for the Liberal Democrats for the Liberal Democrats at the moment. So it's something that they need to sort out fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the final thing on the, Liberal, on the Lib Dems is I was looking at the polling a couple of days ago for the London mayoral election next year. Um, the long and short of it is Sadiq Khan is going to win the election. I think on the first preference votes, he's almost at 50%. And then once the next round is, is completed, he's on around 63%. So it's not going to be particularly close kind of if the election was held today. But of course... The Liberal Democrats don't currently have a candidate for the mayor of London. The, the previous candidate pulled out from nomination. And yet the Liberal Democrats are still polling 11% in London for the mayoral election. And that's actually quite encouraging because if a faceless Liberal Democrat can still poll at 11% in London when the Labour Party is starting to, pull, starting to perform better nationally, I feel like there's some kind of glimmer of hope for a party there's some kind of potential that perhaps it's not completely in the doldrums and they can start to make a move forward with that and again you look at a lot of the liberal democrat target seats they tend to be kind of in london in the southwest and i feel like if there is going to be a resurgence if there is going to be kind of this second wave of the liberal democrats under ed davey they need to start to focus on seats that are realistic targets for them and i feel like they could make a decent impression if they choose the right candidate in next year's London mayoral election, although, of course, I, I honestly believe that Sadiq Khan could could not say a word until the election, not do anything as mayor and would still win the vote, to be honest. I think he's mm. just got the popularity to see him through. The other story that we wanted to talk about on the podcast today was, of course, the testing situation with regards to the coronavirus in the UK. So Gabriel Pogrond broke an exclusive story on the coronavirus earlier this week. The Whitehall correspondent for the, Sunday, for the Sunday Times revealed that UK testing labs faced a backlog of 185,000 swabs, with some facilities sending tests to Italy and Germany. Um, the report also suggested that UK laboratories are clearing fewer tests than their capacity, with the actual number of people being tested for the coronavirus close to 62,000 people per day rather than the government's claim of 375,000 per day. Randox, a Northern Irish firm, pays Conservative Member of Parliament Owen Paterson as a consultant. It won a £133 million testing contract unopposed at the start of lockdown. And since then, it has disposed 12,401 used swabs in a single day on September the 2nd. The firm has also voided more than 35,000 tests since august so there were quite kind of stunning things included in in this report zach just how bad a position is the testing and tracing situation in the uk at the moment i think it's an absolute calamity we 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 have jumped ever since we tried abandoned testing and tracing back in march right before the pandemic really took hold we've kind of lurched from one disaster to another when it comes to testing it's either the capacity short or it takes forever to go and get a test or get it back and then we thought we had it under control when we were hitting decent targets and there were, you know our testing was plentiful now i think but at my university 
people are being turned away from like all the corona centers in for the testing centers it, it's getting ludicrous that um we're in a position where we are seven months into a pandemic and we still can't get a decent testing regime it's very poor there was a telegraph excuse uh, exclusive last night that hospital workers now cannot get their testing and we're failing i think everyone here we're failing those in the hospitals to prevent the spread we're failing everyone who can't get their tests which disrupts their way of life and also those who are working in the care home sector and we are going it's like a like a back to the future podcast isn't it we said that it's gone back to 2019 over brexit and it's now going back to the the summer of 2020 that we're in the same position as where we were a few months ago that people are still getting coronavirus you know cases are slowly trickling up and people can't get the test or they can get the test so they can't get them sent back it's a real calamity it's it's very difficult at the moment as well and you look you look at the stories as well and there's examples of the government or kind of the testing system trying to send people from london all the way up north to have a test and there's there's also practical issues with with this as well there there was an example on the bbc website that i just read where you can only book four tests at a time so if you're a family of four well five or more you can't book all the tests at the same time i'm not too sure on kind of the practicalities of this and kind of expanding the number of tests you can book at once but there are issues that the government just hasn't addressed and as you say we're what six seven months into this pandemic and there are still quite simple or not so not so much simple but quite kind of kind of admin issues that like admin issues that still haven't been sorted by the government and that's that is concern and again there's been comments today that from the prime minister and from the health secretary where they've insisted that they are going to try and speed up the testing across the UK. And it, it's a case of whether or not it's believable. And again, one, one of the interesting things, I don't watch a lot of TV coverage anymore. I don't, I don't really watch news TV. I, I get information from kind of news websites and this kind of thing. And I was talking to my dad the other day and he was talking about coronavirus tests and he talked about an example where someone had gone to a test centre that they didn't know existed, just kind of turned up and then was tested for the coronavirus and they spoke to a news reporter. The news reporter asked them kind of, oh, why are you getting a test here? And he said, well, I've done my two weeks in isolation after returning from a country no longer on the safe list. And I just wanted to be double sure that I was okay, so I got a test. And there are these examples in across kind of digital broadcast and radio media of people misusing the testing system. And again, there's this example, and there was polling figures on this as well, where the the British public said that they would sooner blame fellow citizens than the government if there was a second wave. And I feel like part of this is all wrapped up in the confusion. I don't think people across the country, especially if they're not following this closely, really understand what's going on. Mm. Especially with the government's restrictions as well. Like, it doesn't help about the groups of six you have the rule of six where unless you're grouse shooting it's indoor groups of six but then there's so many caveats on that and i think the more confused you get the more anxious i think people get because they fear that they've been around in a pub where there are 10 groups of six theoretically and they fear they may have the virus and if they can't get the testing they don't really know what to do and amongst that confusion 
people are blaming each other for being confused. And it kind of just leads to a collapsing confidence in what the government are doing, but also in how people are supposed to perform their daily lives. And for me, when you have all of this chaos, you do need strong leadership, if not from the Prime Minister or the Health Secretary, but from the NHS themselves. And if the NHS themselves aren't getting to grips with, if they don't know their brief as well, kind of public health message isn't going out there either. So there are going to be plans to put the NHS top of the list for coronavirus tests that will be published in the coming days, the Justice Secretary has said today. And of course, I should reiterate that we're currently recording on the 16th of September at half past three. So if anything has changed, that would be why. Um, people in care homes will also be a priority, while schools could also be considered, according to Robert Buckland. Resolving delays with testing was the number one issue that the government was currently working on at PMQs, as you've already mentioned, Zach. Um, Labour's deputy leader, Angela Rayner, said the Prime Minister had time and time again made pledges on testing, but then breaks those promises. Standing in for party leader, Sakia Starmer at PMQs, she then told the House of Commons they've had six months to get this right, and yet the Prime Minister still can't deliver on his promises. She continued... The health secretary said yesterday it would take weeks to sort out this uh, weeks to sort out this situation. We don't have weeks. Mr. Johnson, the prime minister, defended his government's record, saying that the UK had done more tests than any other European country. He added that kind of the government and health services around the country were trying to meet the demands of a colossal spike of people trying to get coronavirus tests and they were trying to do this at record speed. He then added that 89% of tests that were done in person were being returned the very next day. I feel like with this, we're having a slightly kind of American twist on this as well, because whenever we talk about the coronavirus in America, we often hear Trump say, oh, we've done more tests than anyone else. We're doing a great job of testing. If we did less tests, we'd have less people with the coronavirus or less people would would be known to have had the coronavirus and the defense of the government's record by saying that we've done more tests than any other european country is not a great look for the government i would say because had they handled the pandemic better then there would be less people needing tests because less people would have got the coronavirus about boris johnson you know that's his raise on tetra isn't it that it's always big promises. It's always in a campaign mode. And I think you've seen that across this pandemic that at the start, I always thought that was a very good way to deal with it. As in it's Johnson's Jews, I think the speech he'd done when he locked down the country was actually the leadership I think the country needed. But and then from that onwards, it felt like it was another election campaign. Now we're going to get this by October. And it kind of, you wouldn't be surprised if he says we'll get half a million tests a day by the end of it, or I'll die in the ditch. It's that kind of straight away. It's uh, it's always numbers involved. There's always a by this time, by that time. It's we're going to do this. It's one of the biggest in Europe. It's like it's all well and good saying this, and people will get optimistic about this. But as we've seen in the government's track record so far, I think public opinion is starting to fade away that the government can actually get a handle on this. And the more people you speak to about uh, people that are not wired in like us on politics. If you just say to them, oh, what do you think about testing? Straight away, they go, we don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. They feel distressed. And then the straight away, they, they, they do blame the government. They go, well, how can you blame young people for not giving people tests? It's, it is ludicrous that people just 
cannot get their test. They they feel like, and then with the cases going up as well, it's all well and good having more tests. But if you're getting more positive outcomes, then it kind of puts everyone in a really bad position that more restrictions have to come in at a time when people feel like the government has claimed they've sorted the virus out. I'm a bit bored of this narrative that it's young people's fault for kind of the second wave that we might be entering into because it's just it's just ridiculous because the government spent the whole of the summer, the whole of August, telling people to eat out to help out and to go and see their friends and to kind of um, enjoy summer safely, I believe, was, was the catchphrase that Boris Johnson opted for in the end. And a disproportionate number of young people work in service economy jobs. They work in retail. They work in in hospitality. And then, lo and behold, more young people get the coronavirus than older people. And, of course, this has huge societal impacts because, and we've seen this in other countries as well, once young people start to have an increased number of cases, they give it to older people. They give it to their parents, who give it to the grandparents, who give it to their colleagues, so on and so forth. It's very easy to see how a spread within one age group isn't confined within that age group, because that's just not how society operates. And again, especially in this country as well, because you have a growing number of young people who live at home for longer. And of course, people are at university slightly removed from this through term time. But you have lots more people living at home until their late 20s now, because house prices across the UK, particularly in London and the southeast, are so, so expensive. So then if you spend weeks and weeks and weeks encouraging people to go out and make the most of the summer and then more people get the coronavirus and then more people give it to their parents who are presumably middle-aged, it's easy to see how this can start to get out of control. And again, you look at the coronavirus figures at the moment, I believe on on Tuesday, there were just over 3,000 cases. And again, the seven-day rolling average now for new cases in the UK is just above 3,000 which is a sizable increase compared to where we were 14 days ago. And I think the testing situation needs to be resolved because ultimately testing, and the government has admitted this as well, the government has said this as kind of part of their pitch to to the country, has said, well, testing is the key to getting the economy working because if we test people, if they get the results back quickly, then they can go back into the workforce, whether that be in the NHS or whether that be in the public sector, the private sector, whatever it is. And, of course, the reverse is true. If testing is slow and, and rubbish, essentially, if it's not a good service, then you have people who have to stay off work for longer, which means their businesses will have to shut, which means they might never reopen. And I feel like for a government that claims to be kind of the champions of the small business, it's an awful, awful look to then have to say, turn around and say to someone, sorry, you can't have a test today. Sorry, you're going to have to travel to wherever it might be in the country. And especially in the hotspots. And again, you look at kind of, I'm on the doorstep of Birmingham and Sully Hole, and there aren't enough tests there. And then people are having to move around the country to go elsewhere. And the government last week said that they were going to prioritise places that were in high demand, whether that be kind of watch place areas or places that are currently under local lockdown. And they've, they've simply not been able to keep up. And I'm not too sure how they resolve this issue without investing lots and lots of money into the process. And again, there was a point that um, Caroline Lucas made on um, Politics Today, um, and again on, on Wednesday afternoon, where one of the criticisms of the government was the fact that so much of this has been handed over to private businesses, 
that there's no longer enough transparency in the system so that politicians can see why this is going wrong. Do you buy that analysis or do you think this is just kind of a left wing criticism of the government's handling of the coronavirus? I think it's a valid criticism because we, as, uh, the more you prioritise, the less public accountability you're going to get. And at a time of such national emergency and the kind of the health of the nation message, if you can't see what, what's happening and can't ask why it's happening, then eventually people are going to ask what's happening and where it's going. And if it's a private, in the private sector, we know through the tragedy of many tower blocks, for example, with cladding, that it was you know private contractors so it's kind of a running theme that the more the i don't think i don't buy the whole idea it's a left-wing criticism i think it's a a valid one i wouldn't put too much stress on it because i think at the same time this is the government's own doing they know what they're doing by trying to spat spat it up for war as we say and i think in general the whole i think because people it's a big debate over what's actually going on behind testing it's so Co, who are the private, the private, uh, the private people behind who basically are behind the NHS for the testing. So when people say it's the NHS's fault, and when it's Circo's fault, so it's that kind of game of semantics. So when you when it comes to inevitably the, the coronavirus inquiry, who are you going to blame? Are you going to blame the public or the private? And if you can't blame the private, why can't you? The issue at hand as well is, of course, this is something that the government has had the power to control. And again, the example that was in the Sunday Times report, where Randocks, a company that kind of won a £133 million contract unopposed at the start of the lockdown, therefore had the position to run the testing. And of course, this, and we've heard this so much this year, the pandemic, COVID-19 is an unprecedented situation that no one could have possibly predicted. We've heard this a lot. You, you can debate the truth behind that statement or not, but there we go. This is what we hear. It's unprecedented, the situation we find ourselves in. Seven months into the situation, it's no longer unprecedented, is it? Because we've been living this for a number of months. I've been back at work for a number of months. People are going back to university, and this has kind of been known for a number of months. People were very, very aware of the fact that people from around the world, students, were going to return to the UK from other countries that may or may not be on the safe list and come back to the UK and it was going to cause a surge of tests and again the medical and scientific officers in SAGE also said well we've kind of reached the maximum amount of openness in the economy if we want to open other stuff we're probably going to have to close some things as well and the government is is insisting that local lockdowns will be sufficient and the next couple of weeks will be very very important to the UK's management of the coronavirus because if it starts to go pear-shaped it will be because it's spread beyond the areas of local lockdown there'll be more and more added to the list and you could quite easily have a situation where most of the West Midlands is shut down or most of the North is shut down and that's concerning from from so many levels whether that be socio-economically or whether it be politically as well because because the idea that you'd have to lock down parts of the country that traditionally vote for the Labour Party or whatever it might be compared to other parts of the country that are faring better with the coronavirus and there not being enough tests is not a great look. And I honestly don't think that's what's happening here. I think there's just a shortage throughout and just mismanagement throughout. But if we had a situation where there's there's a bigger kind of 
phase of local lockdowns and the government hasn't got a handle of testing, then that's something that will really cut through to the public because it's going to hurt people where it really matters. Absolutely. And like we say, it's also, it is a capacity issue, but how much longer can, like you said, about being unprecedented, it, it, when you had all this time to deal with, I think, pub, like I say, public opinion, it fades away very quickly, the whole get behind your government, they're doing everything they can. And as time goes on, as we get you know, abreast of more developments and more ways and innovations to get around this, when they're available, the government aren't doing it and they're not doing it out of choice, then inevitably people are going to start questioning what's the point in what, what's happening and about local lockdowns, for example. We all, we, we all agree that a second lockdown would economically devastate the country and people accept that that can't happen. And at the same time, I do feel like the way you can get to a big open economy as it was a few months like before the pandemic is you'd have to scrap social distancing rules. And once you start trying to put asterisks on what two metres actually is, for example, we had that fast of one metre plus when the shops reopened, um, the debate over face coverings and face masks, all of this starts to renege once we talk about trying to lift restrictions and trying to give people these kind of immunity passports. And it's, like I say, this running theme of the government's response to this pandemic has been like, like a Vicky Pollard, yeah, but no, but yeah, but no, but, and everything gets changed every day and it's a U-turn every other week. And once you become that incompetent and that incoherent, it get, it becomes impossible. There was some pressing analysis that I heard the other day on one of the podcasts I listened to, where they were talking about Donald Trump, they were talking about the president, where his popularity ratings or kind of the ratings with regards to his management of the coronavirus at the start of the crisis were very, very good. His his scores with regards to the management of the coronavirus were higher than his job satisfaction level, which which obviously means that there were people on the other side of the aisle who felt that he was doing a good job, essentially. And as that as as the coronavirus issue has gone on, his popularity on kind of in general, but of course his management of the coronavirus has fallen significantly. And you look at other countries, you look at kind of Emmanuel Macron, his ratings have kind of held fairly steady. And of course, you look in New Zealand, the prime minister there has done exceptionally well, kind of with her polling ratings as well. And the point that was made was that people are forgiving for the fact that prime ministers, presidents, politicians in general are going to make mistakes at this moment in time. Whether it be your university making a mistake, whether it be the leader of your country making a mistake, whether it be the person who owns the business you work for making mistakes. These are genuinely very, very tricky times for everyone involved. And people would have forgiven people for the fact that things go, things go wrong at some points. That's OK. And I think part of the reason why this is starting to slip away from both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump is because there's starting to be a feeling that that not a lot of effort's gone into this, and especially in, in America, where people will kind of level the criticism at Donald Trump, that he's basically given up on managing the coronavirus, he's just kind of putting his feet up, there's not a lot of urgency, and you see that with the relief packages that just haven't come to fruition. And you compare that to what what's happening in the UK, and we're starting to reach the end of people's patience, we're starting to reach the end of people's ability to say, well, this is unprecedented, this is new, no one really was prepared for this, because... 
at this point, we had a, a, what, a five or six week period where the number of cases in the UK were really, really low comparatively. And now they've shot up again and now there aren't enough tests. And I think people are probably going to start to get very, very agitated with the management of this. Especially as we start to reach into the winter months, because inevitably, if these conditions are still in place by November, by December, people are going to start to worry about Christmas. And again, the headlines when the Raw of Six was announced was Christmas is cancelled, Christmas under threat, so on and so forth. And it's it's not a great kind of policy to fall down on, is it, as a government, if you, if you no. are blamed for cancelling Christmas? It's especially the way it could be spun, like, you know, we, I know that we can't make personal drives at people, but Boris Johnson does look a bit like a Grinch. And the first thing that perhaps maybe the Sun, who have always been a conservative leaning paper, could be the Grinch who did steal Christmas. And if people do blame the government for that, you'll see the conservatives eventually plummet in the polls. I mean, we've been waiting for this kind of lag to kick in, that there is so much dissatisfaction with the government in terms of just their day-to-day handling of, of the affairs of the country, but also their affairs of the pandemic. They've been plummeting. Boris Johnson's personal ratings have plummeted, but the Tories in the actual national polling has kind of steadily stayed at around 40%. And I think that kind of thing would be the needle, the, the, the straw in the camel's back would just plunge them away and into a Labour lead, potentially, because you do not want to come across as the one, that, not just A, you've stolen Christmas, but in terms of you are that inept that summer was cancelled, everything else has been cancelled and everyone's thinking, oh, it'll be fine by Christmas. And people like that kind of, the casual, oh, it will all be fine by Christmas. And if it's not, people will start to turn their fire, I think, in the polls. For sure. I think the polling figures as well in the UK are quite interesting because it's edging very, very slowly towards the Conservatives and Labour levelling out in terms of vote share. And I think for the first time we saw Labour and the Conservatives tie on a poll a couple of weeks ago, which was interesting. And I do question kind of what has to happen in the UK to make people start to swing around. Because we're now into, what, a decade of Conservative Party being the largest party in the UK. That's a very long time. And I don't think anyone really predicted that the Conservatives would have been able to sustain this length of control over the executive and legislature. And so much has changed since they first came to power in 2010 as well. And of course, so much has changed this year as well. It's just a very, very long time to be in government. And what strikes me as well is a lot of the time Boris Johnson will say this government achieved X, Y, Z. And a lot of the time Boris Johnson's government didn't achieve these things. It was either the Cameron government or the coalition government or sometimes the May government. In the eyes of, of the prime minister, all of the previous conservative and coalition governments were this government, which, of course, is is incorrect. And again, that's interesting. And the other thing that strikes me as well, this is this is a tangent, but I was watching the, the final episodes of of the All or Nothing documentary about Tottenham and Amazon. It's very good. <laughs> I do recommend it. Um, and the final episode, I, I won't I won't spoil it, but the final episode talks about or it doesn't talk about it, it kind of relives post lockdown life as a Premier League footballer. And you see there's one of the striking images as well was there's a there's a shot of Jose Mourinho at the Tottenham training ground with a really, really big screen in front of him with all of the players on Zoom, where the players are, are training at home. 
and he's just standing in what looks like a, a Tottenham control room, effectively. It was quite funny. And then the other things as well, which he had like clips from the Prime Minister talking about locking down the country on whatever it was, the 23rd of March. And that feels so, so long ago. And you listen to those clips back again, and it's like, wow, we've moved so far from this. And yet, at the same time, not much seems to have changed. People are still getting quite worried about this. And again, I was at work last week, and we, we talk, obviously, about the situation across the country quite a lot. And the people I work with now are starting to get quite anxious about the coronavirus again. And there was a number of weeks where none of us, of course, everyone was vigilant and everyone was sticking to the guidelines. And uh, I mean, I'm, I must sanitize my hands at least three times an hour while I'm at work. It's probably a little bit excessive. Um, but like people were very vigilant and now people are starting to be a bit like, well, uh, the cases are creeping up both in Coventry and Warwickshire. Do we really want to be taking these risks? maybe I'll, I'll take an extra step back when I'm, I'm helping the customer kind of thing. And I think that's going to start to start to show across the country. Of course, that's an anecdotal example, but confidence in the UK is being shaken. We've seen job figures and the number of people on payrolls reduce significantly. I believe it was around 600,000 of those this week from the Office of National Statistics. And I just feel like the government is approaching somewhat of a brick wall and they need to find either a way to go through it in in the mold of Boris Johnson in his in his truck or around it there needs to be some solution there needs to be something that unlocks this situation Zach I feel like we're probably approaching the end of the show do you have any final thoughts or final topics that you wanted to talk about just uh it's actually a, a breaking development Boris Johnson is at load in the liaison committee and he's just admitted that at the moment we we as a country do not have capacity for our testing, which is a really serious um, news snippet because he's, he's saying there will be 500,000 by the end of October. And he was asked, oh, do, you do you think that that will be coping with the demand? He says he hopes so. I think that won't reassure people who aren't watching that or who hear of this, that officially the Prime Minister has now said that there is not enough capacity for testing. And as cases are starting to go up and people are starting to wonder whether they can work from home or they go back into the offices, which is part of this big, big recruitment drive by offices to try and get people back to work, that these kind of developments are not helpful in the grand scheme of things, not just in terms of public health, but in terms of the economic recovery. That's really interesting. And again, this is kind of made the first half of this podcast slightly um, out of date at the time of recording it, but we'll, we'll press on regardless. On that front as well, the government has been saying, well, we've had uh, the, the 300,000 testing capacity. And then there was the report that, well, in all, in all honesty, the government only really had 62,000. And now the prime minister has come out and said, well, we don't have the capacity we need. That's a big shift. And again, we've seen in America Donald Trump having to kind of combat the assertion that he had lied to the American people about the severity of the coronavirus. We might at this point be inching towards a situation where people start to say, well, Mr. Johnson, have you been lying to us about the country's ability to test people suspected to have the coronavirus? And again, that quite quickly becomes a toxic issue, I would say. Mm, absolutely. And again, it, it is kind of catnip for the opposition that if Boris Johnson openly says basically the government's world beating shambles is now being beaten. It, it's just not a good look for, for the Conservatives at all. And it's it, it, like uh, many MPs say, this could, the polling, keep going back to the polling, this could be where the 
flag starts to kick in that once people start to realise that a situation that they thought was under control by the government isn't under control and another party is just there. They don't have to even say anything, but if they just say, look, you've been in power for a long time, you've still, you've not, you've been in control of this for a long time and nothing's changed, nothing's actually happening and I'm getting worried, I'll just vote for another party. And that's where we start to see the long-term effects kick in. The local elections are going to be, I think this is probably where we're in the show, I think the local elections next year are going to be so important because, and of course, we don't know what situation the government will be faced with by that time. We don't know how the coronavirus will look. We don't know how open the economy will be. But a year on from the coronavirus, a year on for the situation we're in now, we're going to have local elections. We're going to have the mayoral election and we're going to see a lot of questions about local management of the coronavirus issues because of course there are local and regional kind of implications of this as well with regards to the devolution with regards to the powers that councils have with regards to their funding and if people say well maybe our council does need to be funded better maybe we'll vote for a party that is going to raise council tax slightly or whatever it might be i think that could be an issue for the conservatives on the doorstep as well because if there are if there are council areas that have failed to fund things that the government has asked for then you look at it and say well maybe we need to have a change of direction i think that could be important and again we won't know the specifics of this on a local level but if you have local kind of council leaders who have been perceived to have dealt with the coronavirus badly that again is going to be a huge issue and again we often see local elections being somewhat of a a kind of popularity rating of the governing party. If the governing party is not in a good place next year, I'd accept I'd expect them truly to be punished in next year's local elections, especially kind of in the north potentially. Mm, that's that's the place where usually that does win you the elections. It's not the converted matters of the of the south and the southwest. It is really about whether the it's now the blue wall can it stay blue or will red brick start to appear for sure is that any final thoughts for the show today i think we've perfectly rounded things up i think that's where we're at at the moment where brexit has come back and it's back with a vengeance and we're it is a back to the future episode of this podcast everything feels a bit like deja vu for sure um before we go i wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who is listening to the podcast at the moment we've had a frankly unbelievable week in terms of the number of people kind of tuning in to listen so if you've stuck around thank you so so much it's it's genuinely kind of made our weeks if we're being totally honest it's been great um if you haven't already please do follow us on twitter at midfield politic you'll find we tweet quite a lot through the week i tend to post updates about politics whether it be the uk or the us we have lots of stuff going on there too you can also follow us on twitter our links will also be in the description to this podcast as well however that that does bring episode 14 of the midfield politics podcast to a close my name has been luke james i've been joined by zach green and until next time stay safe and keep voting